Good morning, everyone. Now, I must say we started off this morning by, by hearing that, you know, just some things that fathers won't ever say. There's one thing that a, that a guy preaching will never say, and that is that I will definitely stick to my 27-minute time slot. Um, but I will try. I'll try my best. My name is Devin. I'm part of the staff team. Um, and again, a great privilege to be with you this morning. Really excited to be with you and to speak with you. Um, I cannot wait for that moment that, you know, we get to meet together and I can actually look you, look you in the eye at the moment. I can see five faces, which is great, but I would love to just look at all of you. But the day is coming and we are really grateful for that. Now, this morning, we are continuing with our series. Um, Shirley gave a bit of an introduction at the start. It's called, the, it's walking through the Shema. Um, it's looking at what, what does it mean to love God with all of our hearts and all of our minds and all of our strength and our neighbors, ourselves and one another. And this morning we're focusing particularly on what does it mean to, to love God with all of our strength. And, um, and, and the one theme that kind of encapsulates that whole concept is the theme of stewardship. You'll remember if you think back a couple of months, when we, when we, uh, we went through this encounter series where we saw how Jesus encountered different people. And this, there was this one story in particular where Jesus encountered a, a young entitled Jewish man. And Jesus told him the story of, of a rich fool, he called him, a rich man who, who was all about just gathering stuff and getting more and more and building bigger barns. This man it had no re regard for God. He had no regard for his fellow man or love for fellow man. He isolated himself. For this guy, everything was about his wealth. Everything was about his comfort. And so Jesus tells the story to this young Jewish fellow. And then he says this, he says, but this man is a fool because he doesn't know that at any moment God can call his life to account. And the, and the, the main point, the crux of that story is this, that everything we have, even the breath in our lungs, the, the fact that our hearts are beating, everything, the most basic of things is a gift from God, but it's a gift on loan. It's a gift on loan. And what I mean by that is, is we will have to give an account for the way that we steward these gifts. Again, Shirley gave it such a nice introduction that, that we've identified the different gifts that God gives us. I mean, this is not an, um, an exhaustive list, but you can sum it up in saying it's the time that is given us and the talents and the treasure, which is our possessions and our money, the terror, which is the creation in which we find ourselves and then our temple, our bodies. And so when we think about how can we love God with all of our strength, what we are saying is the way that we do this is by stewarding the gifts he has given to us, namely these five things, time, talent, treasures, terror, and temple. And so that's what we're going to be looking at this morning. Um, and we're going to do a bit of a deeper dive into one of these five, namely treasure. So I've got the fun topic of speaking about money, money, money. So strap yourselves in, put the safety belts on as we tackle this some, sometimes somewhat controversial topic or certainly one that, um, that hits close to home for many, many people. So let's have a look at that. Now, Elissa read 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 6 to 15 for us. So I'm not going to rehash that. I'm not going to uh, read it again. But let me make a few comments just to, to, just to kind of give the context of the whole scene and what Paul is speaking about when he is speaking about giving in that context. We see from the, from the previous letter to the Corinthians in chapter 16, he wrote this to the Corinthians. He said to them, I'm telling you to do the same thing as I taught the Galatian churches, and that is to 
on, on, on the first day of the week to gather all the money, you know, to put money aside into, into some sort of saving place. So that when Paul gets to these churches in Asia Minor, they don't have to have a massive offering all at one stage. He can just come, he can collect the money, and then they can choose guys who would then take it to Jerusalem. Now, by looking at 1 Corinthians 16, like I said now, and different other texts, we see what was happening there is the, the church in Jerusalem, they were going through a tough time. And so they needed help. And so Paul said, listen, I'm going to go to Asia Minor. I'm going to go to all these churches, Ephesus and Galatia and Colossians and Corinthians, and all these different places. And I'm going to go get an offering so we can help the people in Jerusalem. So the main idea of this gift, of this, this offering was, it was a one-time voluntary thing to go and help the church, the poor um, in Jerusalem. It was all about alleviating human suffering. But Paul had, a, he had another modus operandi. He had, a, he had a, a different objective as well, a more theological one. And that was this. He wanted to unite the churches in Asia Minor with the church in Jerusalem. Or I could say it like this. He wanted to unite the the, the Gentile Christians with the Jewish Christians. And he thought, this is a practical way that we can knit the hearts of these different people. And so that's the whole context of the giving in this particular passage. But I think the principles that we can draw from this, it extends beyond just this type of gift or this type of circumstance that we find, um, you know, in Jerusalem and in Corinth at this time. Whether it be a one-time thing or a monthly type of thing, uh, whether it's giving you know, for the advancement of the kingdom um, through the ministry of paid staff, whether it's giving in the form of, of being a, a sign of the kingdom of God by, by uh, looking after the poor, or whether it's giving, um, you know, for the purposes of being a, a signpost of the kingdom in the sense that we are taking care of one another, all generosity, all giving, this text gives us principles for all, all types of giving um, that we can find. So, Without further ado, I want to ask three questions this morning of our, of our text that we read uh, together this morning. And these are the three questions. How should we give? Why don't we give? And why should we give? In other words, how, why not, and why? These are the things I want to draw from this text in this morning that we can apply to all sorts, all types of possible uh, generosity or giving in our lives. And so the first question, how should we give? What can we learn from this passage? What, what does Paul have to say about giving? How should we give? Let's have a look at this. The first thing I would say is this. We need to give generously, right? This is no rocket science. I mean, if we just read the passage, it's right there. We need to give generously. Verse 6 and verse 7 says this. It says, remember this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. But whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each of you should give what he has decided in his heart to give. I want to draw your attention to the fact he's speaking about a sowing and a reaping. Now, again, these were churches in Asia Minor. I mean, we were in Ephesus a few years ago. And even till this day, it's a farming community. Yes, they've got big urban centers. But for most part, most of the country, it is, it is, it is rural. It is um, you know, it's farms, it's farm communities all around. And so Paul was speaking in a language that they could understand. He was drawing on an analogy that they could pick up. And he was saying to them, listen, you know, from your farming experience, if you sow seed, if you do it sparingly, in other words, if you're going to keep back, if you're going to do it begrudgingly, 
then your harvest will not nearly be as large as when you sow abundantly. I mean, it makes sense. You know, you can only, you can only reap and you can only harvest that which you have sown. And so he uses this analogy. Now he pulls it through to, to giving and he says to them, the same with your giving. I want you to sow, not, not sparingly, like, you know, but, but generously, like you would sow your seed for farming. The more you put in the ground, the greater the harvest. The more seed you will have for, the, for next year, to plant next year. And so the same with our giving. He says, I want you to give, not, not sparingly. Don't ask the question, what's the minimum I can give? But rather give generously so that you can reap generously. Now we'll look at the reaping, reaping part of it later. But for now, I want to make the point. Maybe we can go to the next slide, please. I want to make the point that the first principle we take from this, our giving should be done generously. Secondly, we can pick up this from this passage is, is our giving needs to be secret, needs to be done secretly. And what I mean by that is we need to take care of our motives. We need to take care of our motives. You see, Paul says this in verse seven, he says, each of you should give what he's decided in his heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Now, I want to draw your attention to just those words, not reluctantly or under compulsion. You see, so often we, that's what we do. We've got this, people put an expectation on us and therefore we give, but it's not really, it doesn't come from the inside. It's, we, we kind of just give to please people. For Paul and for God, the motives are really, really important. You see, when we give, we ought to give not to please people or the expectations of people, but we should give because we love God and we love people. We should give because we want to please our Father in heaven and we want to take care of those around us. That's why we give. You think about the words of Jesus who said this in, in, in Matthew chapter 6, called the greatest sermon that was ever preached, a Sermon on the Mount. He said this, that when you give, don't be like the hypocrites who blow the trumpets when they give so everyone can see. People who draw attention to themselves through their generosity. He says, don't be like these people. But when you give, he said, he said let your left hand not even know what your right hand is doing. He says, and then your father who sees in secret will reward you. The point Jesus is making is he's speaking also about motives. The same thing that Paul is doing here. When we give, it's, it's, a, it's a, yes, there's a public, there's, there's something public about it, but yet the motives behind it is, is something I'm doing because I love God and I want to worship God. Maybe one thing I can pick up, friends, at this stage is, is just in terms of generously and secretly and the motives behind it, let me take a quick moment just to speak about our hearts in terms of amounts that we give. You know, so many, when we ask the question, what's the minimum amount I can give? Or, you know, what's the minimum amount that God requires of me? I think we missed the point. You know, Paul would say, no, no, do it graciously, do it with the right motives. And so at this point, let's, let's quickly speak on the topic of tithing. Now, up until this point, for the last 10 years, I've spoken on, on finances quite a bit. But for the last 10 years, I've always, you know, I've been in the auditing sector and in the financial, financial sector. And so I've never, apart from two instances in South Africa, I've never received any money from the church. And so, so in a sense, it's been easier in the past to just speak about this because I, I kind of felt, you know, removed from the situation and I could just, I could just speak. Um, and then I can do the same with you. You are gracious, but this time it feels a bit different. And um, 
Anyway, let's speak on tithing. Now, I know there's a debate. I'm well aware of the debate. And for us to unpack everything this morning, it would probably take three or four weeks to do a proper job of it. But here's the crux of it. I'm, just, I'm not going to delve into it too much, but here's the crux of it. So we've got one party that is, when you speak about tithing, they're saying, okay, it was a Jewish practice. It was something that they did in the Old Testament. And the main reason for the tithe was, was to uphold the temple and the temple sacrificial system. But when Jesus came, you know, he replaced the temple. He made the temple redundant because he is the ultimate sacrifice. And so therefore, tithing is no longer normative for us as Christians today. That's the one side of the argument. Then you've got the other side of the argument that says, no, yes, it was done in the Old Testament by the Jews, by the people of God. But Jesus didn't come to do away with the law, to abolish the law. He came to fulfill the law. And by the way, tithing was done before the law through Abraham to Melchizedek. Now, I know the arguments. I've done quite a bit of, bit of work on this particular topic. I know the strengths and the weaknesses of both arguments. But this is what I want to leave with you this morning. This is what I want to give you. Now, obviously, us at Southside, we go for the second option. But let me give this to you. And this is the following. Both of these parties would say one thing. They would say, it is true that the people in the Old Testament gave 10% of their income to the work of God. Both parties would agree to that. Then the follow-up question would be, is now that we live in the New Testament, in the New Covenant, why would we do less? That's what it comes down to. Why would we do less? I mean, everything about the New Covenant is better. We are in Christ. We've got an open relationship to the Father. We can see where He is at work. We have the gift of the Holy Spirit. We have communion with the Spirit. We can walk with Him. We can know Jesus. We have been called to a mission. We, we, the kingdom of God has been inaugurated, and we... We are now God's co-workers in the Missio Dei, in the mission of God. And so we are the hands and feet of Jesus. Such a privilege, such a time. What a, what a wonderful time for us to be alive. And so the question remains then, why would we not outgive those who lived under the old covenant, those who lived under a type of law giving? I'll leave that with you. So we're speaking about generosity. We're speaking about giving as, 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 as something that needs to be done with the right motive. I'm not going to give because someone is forcing me. I'm going to give because, yes, God requires of it, but I'm going to do it because I love God and I respond to him. And thirdly, cheerfully. Verse 7 again. Each of you should give the amount that he has decided in his heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. God loves a cheerful giver. And so Paul, Paul is incorporating some of the Old Testament here. You see, in the Old Testament, in scriptures like Proverbs chapter 22, we see this, that where people gave reluctantly or where people gave under compulsion, in other words, their heart wasn't in it, it said that it canceled out the benefit of the giving. You know, in a sense, it's like God saying, I mean, we can pull this, this analogy through to human experience as well. But in a sense, it's God like saying, I know the heart. If your heart is not in it, I don't really want your gift. We had an incident yesterday. I told Camilla I would share it this morning. But our one son came out yesterday. Camilla and them were meeting us in the street. They came to drop off something for us. And we were chatting outside. And my one son came running outside with a bag of sweets. And uh, he looked to his mother and he said, can I please have these sweets? And, and sure enough, Svenia's my wife said, yeah, sure you can have some sweets. And you could just see his face light up. You know, he was going to get, he was going to have a bag of sweets. But then she continued and said, yeah, you can have the bag of sweets. 
but you'll have to share it with your friends. And you can see his whole demeanor. You can see his whole face. Just the light on his face just change. All of a sudden, he was just distraught, you know. And he offered Hudson, um, Camille's son, he offered him some sweets, which, you know, um, I mean, who would want to take sweets from someone if it's offered in such a way? You know, who would want to receive a gift from someone if it's done so reluctantly, so under compulsion? And in a sense, that is what we have here. Paul is saying, listen, we need to give, but God loves a cheerful gift. I mean, God is a cheerful giver. He's given us creation. He's given us his son. He's given us eternal life. Why would we not do the same? Now, I must say this morning, I need to add just a caveat here. We cannot wait for our emotions, you know, kind of to catch up before we start giving. We can't say, okay, I don't really feel very cheerful at the moment. So I don't think I'm going to give. You know, that's not the right route. And so time and time again, I've listened to people's stories. And this is what they tell me. Yes, at the start, you don't really feel like giving. But you stick at it, you learn the discipline, you become generous. And as you go, and as you experience the joy of it, your heart becomes cheerful when you do it. I thought this morning about running. You know, if you, start, if you tell me now, go for a run and, and be cheerful about it, I don't think I can do that. You know, I, I'm not really fit at the moment. So I'll do like one or two kilometers, and it's probably going to be a little bit painful. Um, but I know from past experience, if you stick to it, if you keep running, let's say you make it a daily practice, you're one or two kilometers, and then you increase it four, five, six, whatever the case might be. Then you do a half marathon. Then you do a marathon. A year, two, three years from now, as you get into this practice, I tell you what, you're going to be a pretty miserable person if you don't get to run every day. You start running out of joy. You start running cheerfully because it's grown on you. You've, you've, you've learned to love it as you've experienced it. I think the similar principle applies. Let's move on. So we've had a look at the question, how should we give? We're saying do it generously. We're saying do it with the right heart motives. And we're saying do it cheerfully. And I don't think this is rocket science, friends. I don't think this is anything new. Which leads me to my next question. Well, why don't we do it? You know, when I say we, I'm talking about Christians in general, in the West, or you can say in general, why, why do we struggle to give? And I want to give you two things this morning that I felt like this week the Lord lay in my heart. In verse 8, it says this. It says, and God is able to bless you abundantly so that in all things at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. The first reason we don't, we don't give is because there's, there's really a lack of trust. That's what it comes down to. There's a lack of trust in the heart. And that's the, I think that's the point that Paul is making. He's saying, listen, don't wait for one day for, for this rainy day. Don't wait for your ship to come in before you start being generous. He says, no, no, you need to trust God because God is able to bless you abundantly so that in all things at all times, maybe you can say that in your homes, in all things at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. He's saying God's able to bless you. He's, he's able to do that in all things, all times. He'll take care of your needs and he'll give you enough so you can abound in every good work. In our minds, sometimes we, we think, no, no, no. One day when I have enough, when my reservoir, when my tank of, of possessions or money, whatever, is full enough, it'll start spilling over into the second tank. That'll be my generosity tank. And when this generosity tank starts getting, then I start giving. Well, that's not how it works. Paul is saying to us, no, no, no. 
You don't wait for one day because enough will never be enough. He's saying, as you go, you trust God that both of these tanks will fill up simultaneously. Your tank and your giving tank will both fill up simultaneously because God is able to do it. It comes down to trust. Just love what, what Paul writes to Timothy. He says this in 1 Timothy uh, chapter 6. He says, command the rich among you not to be arrogant about their wealth, not to put their hope in wealth. He says, but their hope in God who richly supplies us with everything that we need. He says, our hope must be in God. And so even with our giving, with our finance, we don't wait for one day, for one day, for one day, or when enough will be, en- because enough will never be enough if you are waiting for enough. Now that's a tongue twister. But you get the point. Our hope is in God. We, we can be generous today, even though we don't have a lot, because God will supply our needs and for us to be generous with. Our hope is in God. Those that have put their hope in finances, in wealth, has been, have been disappointed so many times. I was reminded this week of a story. You know, I'm told that the buildings in Wall Street in, uh, in America, the windows can't open. Because they say that in 1929, when the, when the stock markets crashed, some of these billionaires and millionaire stockbrokers, they jumped from the windows. There was just no hope. Once their wealth tanked, there was no hope for them. Paul's saying, no, hope's not in finances. Our hope is in God. Second reason I believe we don't give is because there's a discontentment. There's a discontentment. And this is what I mean by this. Verse 10 tells us, he says, you know, that as we give, he says, and God will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. Now, when we read that, you know, especially in the West, we go, uh, in other words, when I give, God will enlarge the harvest of my righteousness. Well, will he not rather enlarge my bank account? You know, it, it's, it's like we, get, we have this mentality where we, we never have enough. We always need better and bigger. Um, there's this discontentment in us that is, that is just caused a whole consumeristic type of culture where we always want more. We always want to go. We're always striving towards something. There is this emptiness. There is this lack in our hearts. There is this lack of peace. Because we are also always chasing after stuff, more stuff and more stuff and more stuff. And I believe that as we are, if we don't find peace in God, then enough will never be enough. If we go through our lives with this discontentment about us and and start chasing after the wind like our culture is doing, our giving will dry up. Because we will constantly try to look to things to fill the void, to fill the gap, to give us peace, but it never will. And so discontentment well, just is one of the main reasons I believe why we don't give. We need to learn from Paul, Philippians 4. He said, I've learned to be content in all things. He says, as long as I've got food and I've got clothes, I can be content. I can be content. There was a story this week again where there there was a study done in Belgium by some psychologists looking at just the happiness of rich people and poor people. And the study goes, they've got some evidence for this. I'm not sure how, how accurate this is, but this is what they say. They're saying on average, poorer people are happier than wealthy people. Because for one reason, they say, is because poorer people can still appreciate the small blessings in life. Poorer people still enjoy the taste of chocolate. They still enjoy reaching goals. They still enjoy fresh air outside as they go for hikes. 
according to the study, the richer one becomes, the more you, you, you keep chasing after stuff. And it's just never enough. You're just never content. And so their conclusion, it's perhaps a, quite a big generalization, but they believe that the presence of money may be the root of discontentment. I'll leave that with you. But I want to give you a challenge this morning before we move on to our last question, for which we don't really have enough time. But I want to give you a challenge. So this week, every time you or your wife or your husband or whoever goes to the shop, I want you to tell that person this. Tell them that this won't make you happy. Can you do that? So every time you go to the shop, whether you go to buy a pair of shoes or a new driver for your golf bag, in two weeks, three weeks, four weeks, or let's say three rounds of golf later, ah, it'll kind of be old news. You kind of be, you know, you, you'll be looking for something else then. So here's what you do this week, just to get us out of this consumeristic way of thinking, is to say, yeah, it'll make you happy for today or tomorrow, but in a couple of days' time, it, it just won't be lasting. So tell them this, tell them this won't make you happy. All right, remind them of that. Our happiness and joy is to be found in God. Last question this morning. Why should we give? Why should we give? Now, obviously, I don't have time for all of this this morning, but let's just, let me give you the, the headlines, as they say. In verse 10, we've, we've, we've read about this. The Paul is saying that as you give, God will supply the seed for the sower and bread for food. Uh, it will increase the store of seed and it will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. Now, there's many different aspects we can delve into in that particular point, this, this harvest of your righteousness. But one of the things my attention was drawn to in this week is, is the element of joy. The element of joy. I mean, yes, you know, Paul is not treating God like a slot machine saying, you, you put in a couple of coins and God's going to return it financially. He, he might. God is God. He might take you on trips overseas. You know what I mean? Like open doors for you. We don't know God is God. You know, but I think for most part, this is a spiritual blessing. This is spiritual breakthrough. And, and one of these blessings is the aspect of joy. Paul writes to Timothy in that, that text there, 1 Timothy 6. He says to Timothy that in giving, he says, then you are entering what is truly life, that which truly brings joy. And when I read that, when I think about that, I think about the words of Jesus who said, it's more blessed than to give. To give than to receive. Giving produces joy. If you want more joy in your life, go try this out. One commentator said this. He says, investing in heaven doesn't mean we are forfeiting our present happiness. He says it means that we are relocating and deepening our happiness. There's the depth that comes to us and our joy. Second reason why we give, well, it's a wonderful opportunity to participate in the kingdom of God. He says this, verse 11, he says, you'll be, you'll be enriched so that you can be generous. In other words, there's, there's a, a cause and effect. You'll be blessed so that you can be a blessing. Just love what Dallas, Dallas Willard said. He, says, he said this, he says, giving is a primary step in the life of the kingdom of God. But most people don't know it. It is participating in what God is doing for the good in our neighborhoods. What an opportunity for us. Friends, we, we know God is a God. He's the God who became human, as Bonhoeffer put it. He's the God who came down to earth. He got his feet and his hands dirty. 
He loves to meet people where they are at. He's not some abstract idea of an old grandpa on the cloud. He comes down, he meets people where they're at. And one of the main ways we can, we can implement, we can be a sign and an instrument and a foretaste of the kingdom of God in our neighborhoods is through the tool of money. A wonderful tool. People are looking at us, so looking at our conduct and the way that we use our money. Our generosity is a wonderful tool for us, uh, a way for us to participate in the kingdom of God. Last two points. Giving is an antidote, antidote to greed. We just know this, this is what the scripture says. We shall not, from the Ten Commandments, don't covet. Then Jesus comes along and says, be careful of all kinds of greed. Then Paul comes along and says, be careful of the love of money. This is a constant battle for us in Canada. Every day we are confronted with, with the, the, the lure of, of stepping into a culture and a worldview of consumerism, of chasing after money and possessions and wealth. Actually, giving is an antidote to greed. We know with coronavirus, some of us, we've had our jabs, one or two. And in a sense, this, in a sense, we can put it this way. I think now it'll make sense to us that, that giving is, is the vaccine for greed. Giving is the vaccine for greed, you know, but you don't just get two jabs. You've got to stick to it. You've got to keep up with it because greed's going to come back to you. And it's even more deadly than what we find in this terrible virus. And so giving is an antidote to greed. And lastly, it leads to thanksgiving to God. This is one main way, friends, that our neighbors can experience God in a real way. It's through the way that we handle our finances. It's in the way that we give, that we are generous to those around us. And so I leave those points with you this morning. Um, please discuss it, ponder over them this week, and may the Lord grant us more understanding.